I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, luckily, we don't have to imagine too much because we have the Minority Report and other movies and uh, science fiction Philip K. Dick was very good on this where he anticipated the whole idea of pre-crime far more exotic than the dreams of the science fiction writers the idea that you can actually either get into people's thought processes and find out what their intentions are or actually you can kind of look at their behaviours and forecast whether they're going to commit a crime of course the moral question then is do you act on something that has not yet happened Hi, and welcome to Future Visions, the show by Virgin exploring the surreal world of tomorrow through the finest minds of today. I'm Natalie Campbell, and in this series, we've been asking the questions, what will the world look like in 20 years' time? And what can we do to prepare in order to thrive? So I've worked as a futurist for quite a few years now, even before I trained professionally in it. I didn't realise that at the time, but I've always tended to look at the world and to look at problems uh, from the perspective of the future. We've been asking experts, technologists, scientists and critical thinkers to predict the problems and opportunities that are set to challenge us over the coming decades. And in this episode, we meet Tracy Follows, an award-winning futurist who speaks regularly on the subjects of artificial intelligence, gender, work and culture. She also helps clients such as Google and Diageo get future-proof. I just am a a more future-orientated person, Um, probably because I'm sometimes quite an anxious person, and they do say those that are obsessed with the past are depressives, and those that are obsessed with the future have anxiety issues. (laughs) I like to think of myself as an anxious optimist, though, because I'm very optimistic about the future. Tracy's anxious optimism would probably make a good subtitle for this series. As we hurtle forward towards huge technological advancements, it's important to interrogate the change that comes with it. So where does Tracy's anxiousness lie? Well, it's got something to do with data. Imagine how much data is going to be collected on you, on me as an individual, by 2037. Huge amounts of data are already being collected. Voice data, contextual data behavioural data, location-based data, and personal assistance will will be collecting much more data than we can even imagine. I mean, I think there's more data being collected on us right now than we even realise, not not just by the government, but by companies. We have given up all of our rights every time we're asked to sign up to terms and conditions, if we're on a social platform or whatever, or we're buying something off a retail platform, or we are downloading music. Whatever we're doing, people are collecting data from us. Think the web and your mobile, apps, 
basically any interaction with a piece of technology. Just search for something, browse a picture, send a message, ask Siri, Cortana or Google Assistant a question and you're giving away an insight into your way of thinking, something personal. And one of the interesting advancements is how you can collect data through sound. So for example, there are applications now where if you're watching something on the TV, there is a way of picking up through the audio system, picking up lots of data that is held on your individual devices in the house, aggregating that information and then building up a picture of you. So it's a kind of silent surveillance that we don't even necessarily know is going on. So we're not aware of that sort of data. So who knows what kind of data has been collecting on you or me right now? The wires are tapped. The strange thing, though, is that we're kind of aware of this already. When Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in 1990, there was much hysteria around how we could protect our personal information. But more than 25 years later, the public resistance seems to have relaxed. We're pretty much happy to give away everything, bar our bank details. I mean, Larry Page said this a long time ago, the, the, the ultimate ambition is to be able to go beyond instinct, if you like, into intuition, to know what people want before they know they want it themselves. So if that is the ambition, you need to collect an awful lot of personal data on people in order to piece all that together and then serve them up something. You think, my goodness, I, you know, that was just what I want, but I didn't even realise that. Well, of course, that set of AI and algorithms and whatever it might be has put together hundreds, possibly thousands of pieces of data on you and come up with well, that solution or that suggestion. And that is why Google and lots of other companies are going beyond sort of just assistance into prediction, predicting what people will want and will do by what they've done in the past. This idea of targeted advertising, selling us things we've actually been looking at or talking about is one thing. But imagine the possibilities when artificial intelligence is able to go one step further and predicts what we'll want to do next, as Tracy describes. In previous episodes, we talked about how AI might be able to design shopping experiences and virtual reality experiences that are hyper-personalised. There's a clear benefit for both the shopkeeper and customer in being able to predict what people might want to buy. There's definitely lots of business opportunity here and something we should all read up on. But where else could this be used? I think it's only a small step to move into public services, into crime, into you know, medical records and health treatments to, to try to predict where people will end up based on their, their past data. Let's take crime and policing. I think the thing is the criminals are in a way more connected than perhaps the general public and the police forces and other public services. They've got the digital capabilities, they've got all of the systems, all of the technology, and of course they're putting it together in dark ways and they're thinking about some of the things that we would find unthinkable. So in a sense, the criminals are always in front. So that is one of the problems, especially when you're under-resourced. This, I think, will be the motivation for, well, how do we get in front of them? How do we try and anticipate what they're going to do rather than wait for them to do something and then take action. So picture the scene in 20 years' time, where police and lawyers are not only using data to prove things in court, but they've found ways to use data with algorithms and artificial intelligence to do the policing in the first place. What Tracy describes seems like a good solution and completely viable in the way technology seems to be heading. 
there is definitely the sense that police men and women, human beings, will be replaced to some extent by 2037 by autonomous vehicles in the street monitoring people. And, we, and in a way, we're already used to that with surveillance from cameras. It's just that these ones will be moving about like we do. They'll be more mobile, they won't be static. We already know the robots are coming. And artificial intelligence and automation, as with many industries, seems to be the magical shortcut that could be used in policing too. Insert data, a lot of it. Feed the algorithm and allow AI to do the rest. Much like a traffic camera, you can imagine how AI could be used to identify and stop people who are doing a whole range of illegal and unsavory things. And in cybersecurity, AI is already used in this sort of way. This is Emily Orton, one of the directors of Darktrace, a leading company in the AI cybersecurity space. We are a cybersecurity company that uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to detect threats that would previously have gone unnoticed inside the network. Darktrace is very focused on catching um, emerging threats inside of um, a corporate environment, but also in networks such as industrial control systems, where you have lots of computer systems running perhaps nuclear plants or energy facilities. So it's pretty broad technology, and it's using the cutting edge of artificial intelligence to actually spot an emerging pattern of abnormality in real time. So pretty important stuff. It's an extreme example, but nobody wants hackers, people with dark intentions to infiltrate the control systems of things like nuclear energy plants. And if AI can stop this, that's pretty amazing and an incredibly important job. There's obviously a market opportunity for businesses here too. It's something businesses should be thinking about, not just in the distant, but very near future. And we call that model of doing security the immune system. This is an idea of Instead of doing what the traditional approach was, which was to really focus on keeping the bad guy off your network in the first place by building a large or tall or resilient wall and trying to do your utmost to prevent the intrusion in the first place. Instead of that, we're looking at actually saying, well, intrusions are becoming more and more common and the reality is it's impossible to keep every attacker off your network and we've seen you know, a lot of high-profile cyber breaches showing that that's an inadequate approach. And indeed, insider threat is challenging us as well. And of course, when you're talking about insider threat, whether that's Edward Snowden or someone perhaps less malicious, but still exposing your company to vulnerability, those insiders are employees, they're contractors, they're people with legitimate presence on your network. And so there was a real, real problem of how do you find those internal threats and, and catch them before they escalate and they do damage to your systems. This is Jennifer Arcuri, a serial entrepreneur who most recently founded Hacker House, an expert community network dealing in cybersecurity and ethical hacking. Everything will be online. So then the, the liability, the onus of companies protecting, you know, customer data will become even greater. But then because there's going to be so much, you know, at risk, there will be an escalation of cyber attacks, you know, as we keep seeing. So, I mean, you have to remember, security is something that can be fixed. It's not an impossible thing. It's just the, the business so far has been to keep other businesses 
unsafe, so they keep coming back and paying via pen testing. Now that the pen testing market is becoming more more mainstream, uh, you see these services commoditized, so there'll be less of traditional port scanning and patching, and it will have escalated into you know artificial intelligence, machine learning, and being able to keep up with sophisticated tech, you know, everyday these machines get smarter and we can actually teach them how to, you know, find flaws faster and easier than um, any one human. So how does this immune system approach work exactly? And the immune system approach that I mentioned really is about saying, okay, like, like the human immune system, it's about trying to learn what's normal for the environment. What's part of me, what's not part of me. So the enterprise immune system uses those principles of, of the human immune system to learn what's normal and what's not normal inside the organization and then identify threats as they start unfolding. In the case of cybercrime, using AI to monitor for a network of behavior and catch things that are out of the ordinary seems like a great method for identifying crime before it starts. But could something like the immune system approach be applied to other areas of policing? Tracy thinks this could be the case in the future to come. So there will be so much data collected on us that, you know, there is the opportunity to use these data profiles and to kind of design a system that collects data in a way that we can use it to forecast or to predict activity, including crime. So, for example, we could have police forces driving around in autonomous vehicles that have sort of tracking and monitoring devices and that potentially could be picking up on all kinds of digital location-based behaviour, um, mobile behaviour, all, all those sorts of things, piecing all of that data together and then perhaps that car is kind of following you, shadowing you down the street because you are emitting some kind of, I don't know, pre-crime profiling we're jumping ahead a little here, but in principle, this sounds good, right? Catch the bad guys before a crime has happened. And then use AI rather than costly manpower to do so. It sounds like a win-win situation. But what about all of this data? This pre-crime profiling that Tracy talks about? I mean, we're already handing our information over to the advertisers. So why not the police? Governments? Bigger businesses? Let them all have it. And if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to lose, right? You're listening to the Future Visions podcast from Virgin. And in this episode, we're stepping into the predictions of futurist Tracy Follows. She believes big data is going to be the key component of many of the industries of the future. Harness all of this information and apply artificial intelligence to find patterns. And we can solve problems at super speed. As with all disruptive technology, though, where there's a positive, there's also and always a negative. So at the moment, we are seduced by data and and these kind of digital services that offer us convenience and assistance. But essentially, that is a very short-term view of what's going on. If you take the longer-term view, you are into questions around what is this data for, 
can we use it for forecasting crime? Can we get into pre-crime? Can we get into understanding what people are going to do before they've done it? And obviously, there are huge ethical, moral and legal dilemmas around that. But at least we should be talking about it and discussing it, debating it um, through the lens of the long view rather than ignoring it or pretending it doesn't exist. So why should we care about our data? We should care about the data collected on us because it's the raw ingredient for algorithms. Um, and algorithms we should just think of as automated processes. This is Cathy O'Neill, aka MathBabe, a mathematician, data scientist, and author of Weapons of Math Destruction. How big data increases inequality and threatens democracy. Anything that we've historically done with a human process repetitively, that's sort of a value judgment, is being replaced nowadays with automated processes, artificial intelligence, algorithms, however you want to call it. And they collect data to make these decisions, but they're not they're not necessarily collecting the right data. They're not making the, necessarily the right decision. And what's the worst part about it is that it's typically a black box algorithm, which is to say we have no understanding of what's really happening with these decisions, with our data, and in particular, we have no process for appeal most of the time. So that means bad decisions can be made with bad data that might not even be about us. It might be about somebody with our same name and birth date. Um, and we, we, first of all, don't understand it, and second of all, we can't correct it. Here's the dilemma. How many times have you tried to dictate something to your computer or shout an instruction to Siri? And it's got it wrong. You've got the wrong song or the wrong thing on your shopping list. That's incorrect data being collected on you right there. Kathy's all too aware of the big data problem, and her story actually starts in the finance industry. I was working as a quant in finance in, during the credit crisis, and I more and more felt like I was part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And I spent a couple of years trying to help improve the risk model in finance until I finally decided that most people really didn't want to know what their risk was, that it was kind of a, more of a political problem than a math problem. Um, and so I left finance altogether and went into data science, um, hoping to keep my hands cleaner. Um, but I found quickly that my job it basically was almost exactly the same thing. Instead of predicting markets, I was predicting people. But more to the point and more creepy um, was that I was I was really sorting people into winners and losers. Like the winners would get basically opportunities. The losers would not get those opportunities. And what I realized when I uh, started thinking about it more deeply is that, you know, this is happening to us all the time, online and offline. And, you know, for example, if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Apple job applications. Um, and when we don't get those opportunities, when we don't get the job or even an interview for the job, like we don't really understand why. Um, when we don't get the offer for a good credit card online, we will not know what it was about us that, you know, didn't make the cut. Um, so what I was realizing was that I was building these machines that would sort people into winners and losers based not on their actual character or even their behavior, but mostly based on their demographic, which is to say, you know, uh, their zip code, their geolocation, which, you know, is highly correlated to their race, their gender, their class. Um, and I realized that we were going the wrong direction in, in, as a society. You know, instead of creating um, a world of opportunity online, we were actually just building the same kind of class structures as we had been trying to fight against for the last 50 years. Um, so long story short, um, I realized that this could be just as problematic as the algorithms I had seen fail during the financial crisis, but it would not be seen, it would not be noticeable to most people. It would be kind of a silent failure, and I, I wanted to get the word out, which is why I wrote the book. So this is slightly terrifying. If you start with the wrong data or bad data, then things can only get worse. Algorithms and automatic profiling is already used in the business world, blindly some might say. And when the algorithms get it wrong or read information unfairly, the effect can be catastrophic. So, I mean, there's lots of problems that can happen when you build an algorithm. And one of them is, of course, I, I talked before about making subjective decisions when we build algorithms. And if I am a racist person, I could decide to make racist decisions in my building of an algorithm. That isn't to say that I'm, I'm aware of my own bias. It might be an implicit bias problem. This actually makes me shudder. And we'll get onto some examples shortly. But it seems when building algorithms, we're at the mercy of our developers, our programmers and our technologists. And as we've seen in the news recently, often these people might be completely disconnected from the ethics of society or policymaking. So whether they're consciously biased or not, there's always going to be a subplot to the code. But a lot of algorithmic bias actually comes through a different route, which I think is probably the most important thing to keep in mind, which is that we, we are, after all, um, training algorithms on historical data. And when I say historical, I don't necessarily mean from the 1800s. I mean, I really could mean from last week, um, depending on what kind of algorithm it is and how much data you need. But the point being that our entire sort of culture, I mean, like, let's, let's back up. What is data? Data is stuff that we've decided, uh, we've decided to curate from our existence, from our culture. 
It's kind of a digital um, echo of our culture. And since our culture has bias in it, like data has bias in it, it's embedded. Um, and so when we train algorithms with historical data, we are asking these machine learning algorithms to pick up patterns and practices that's recoverable from the data. And of course, that's going to include everything, not just the things that we want the, the algorithms to pick up, but the things that we don't want the algorithms to pick up. Going back to fighting crime, the idea that the police or other bodies could be using algorithms like this in a predictive crime context is pretty terrifying. There seems to be so much room for error. So if you haven't got the gist of this already, this sort of AI is already being put into practice. If you browse the internet, you'll find examples such as in the United States, the Wisconsin Department for Corrections has already been using black box risk assessment tools to help them inform sentencing. AI is effectively swaying judges on whether or not they think a defendant could be deemed low, medium or high risk, in terms of reoffending that is. And closer to home in the UK, Earlier this year, the police in Durham announced that they are ready to go live with a predictive artificial intelligence system that will determine whether a suspect should be kept in custody. It's a very similar idea. So if the historical data and inbuilt bias isn't addressed in the right light, AI has the potential to make the world a much more unfair place. Tracy thinks there's likely to be another component added to that mix too. I think the big change might be emotional data on top of that, how you're feeling, what your mood is, uh, what your mood is likely to be in the future. There's even a suggestion that neuroscience will be able to, to kind of tap into your dreams and kind of get a, a, quite a deep insight into how you're feeling and what you're really thinking deep down and also potentially manipulate that. I mean, th there's an interesting conundrum. If you think that somebody is going to commit a crime, should you take action by entering their subconscious and trying to avert them from doing that, you know? This idea has been termed pre-crime. Well, luckily, we don't have to imagine too much because we have the Minority Report and other movies and uh, science fiction. Philip K. Dick was very good on this, where he anticipated the whole idea of pre-crime. The idea that you can actually either get into people's thought processes and find out what their intentions are through neuroscience, other scientific activity, or actually you can kind of look at their behaviours and forecast whether they're going to commit a crime. Of course, the moral question then is, do you act on something that has not yet happened? Understandably, Kathy has issues with this. I think this is a great example of how technologists are very uneducated in almost every area except for technology. So although I do think people are excited by it, I think it's really dumb and actually very dangerous. People imagine algorithms are perfect, but of course no algorithm is perfect. So the question we always need to ask ourselves is for whom does this algorithm fail? And what are the costs, what are the burdens on the people for whom it's failed, right? Um, and there's no better example than this concept of pre-crime, because what you're trying to get from pre-crime, the way we think about the positive perspective is, we're trying to prevent crimes. I mean, obviously, that would be great. If we don't have crimes, then we're, we're better off. Of course, when you put it in the context of, like, no algorithm is perfect, so there will be mistakes, then the question is, well, who who bears the burden of that mistake? And the answer is, everybody who is accused or even possibly punished for a crime that they will not would not have committed that's a false positive 
Um, a false negative, of course, is also a problem. That's when the algorithm doesn't predict the crime, but somebody actually does go ahead and do the crime. That would also, of course, happen. Um, but what we worry about in terms of the ethical fallout of a bad algorithm is the is punishing people who do not deserve that punishment. And I cannot, literally cannot imagine an algorithm ever existing that would have sufficient accuracy, sufficient number of actual prevented crimes to make up for the false positives. Clearly, with all the opportunity AI holds, we need to make sure we build a code of ethics fast. But how do we do this? How can we take control? And who should be responsible? So, I mean, a lot of people talk to me and they ask me, like, what can I do? Do I need to learn how to program computers to question these algorithms? And that is emphatically not my point. I do not think that this should be uh, something that was ever up to the technologists in the first place who tend to be poorly educated about the ethical considerations in the first place. Um, This is a political fight. This is something that we should all be engaged in. We should all demand our rights. In particular, if we are being judged at our job, if our job is at stake, we might be fired or if we might not get hired in the first place based on some algorithm, we should all know about it. We should all be able to demand evidence that it's meaningful and that it's legal, that it's not discriminating unfairly or illegally. And in general, we should demand a certain level um, of standard, a standard of evidence, like a, an ongoing monitor that to make sure that what it's doing is fair, that it's meaningful. Right now, we have essentially no rules whatsoever for algorithms, and companies are allowed to sort of implement whatever they want. Um, that can't go on, at least for the ones that are important enough to, you know, constitute what I call secret laws. Kathy's top tips are to get wise and to demand your rights. And I could not agree more. As with all advancements in technology, we need to understand the implications of artificial intelligence in order to live safely in a world defined and designed by it. This all leaves me slightly on edge, but I want to get back to the positives. If we're to design a toolkit for ourselves for the next 20 years to keep up with and harness the good side of this technology, what would our experts suggest? And where's the business opportunity? All kinds of businesses from fashion retailing to travel to hospitality to health and well-being are going to be disrupted by this predictive advice and information. The business of search is already rapidly moving into prediction. It's moved from assistance to suggestion to prediction. But essentially, everyone by 2037, every business by 2037 will be in the business of prediction. Right now, we're in this kind of, this world, this industry where, you know, security was seen as something to keep shareholders happy or, you know, once a year to tick a box for customer data, which just isn't enough. We're seeing that actually security needs to be more part of the operations of the business, not just a once-off thing. So I think any advice for companies moving forward will be to scale up those, you know, resources internally. To prepare for the future, businesses need to, number one, take cybersecurity very seriously at board level, make sure that your senior management are engaged. And secondly, you have to think outside the box in terms of the tools that you're using. Artificial intelligence is going to be critical and already is in keeping pace with a threat that's um, constantly striving to get the edge over your defense systems. If you're putting a toolkit together, the biggest practical thing you could take away is big data isn't big data without emotional data. 
So you have to be integrating emotional analytics and emotional data into your profiling of your customers. Uh, that would be my number one uh, sort of takeaway, I think. I think if we're going to look 20 years ahead, which I think is the right thing to do, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to control the propaganda machine that has been created using these techniques? You know, I, I now consider Facebook. Of course, Facebook is a place to, to connect with friends and family, and I get that, and I think we need something that allows us to connect with friends and family online. Um, but at the same time, it's a propaganda machine, the most efficient one that humans have ever built. And we've just recently found that Facebook sold $100,000 worth of ads to fake Russian accounts during the political campaign. We have no insight into what is actually happening to democracy itself. And this is a problem. So if we're thinking about 20 years ahead, there's going to be more data. The algorithms are going to be better. The political ads are going to be more pinpointed and more tailored and more manipulative. And we absolutely have to think about that as a threat to democracy. Well, the other takeaway is that people love to know about themselves. They want loads of information about themselves. So if you are using emotional analytics or neuroscience or whatever, as long as you are sharing with the consumer who's giving you that data, giving you access to that data, what it is about them that you found interesting, uh, I think that's fine because they're desperate to find out what makes themselves tick, uh, why they behave like they behave. Sometimes they don't know that they are behaving a certain way. So sharing that data with them as well is gonna be quite important. When I'm talking to a given corporation about how they're using algorithms, a company, what I say to them is this, if you are working in a regulated space, so if your algorithm has to do with hiring or firing or has to do with um, sentencing people in prison or policing, these are all regulated spaces, there are laws about this. At the very least, you have to make sure that the algorithms you're implementing are legal. Because even though the regulators haven't caught up with auditing algorithms right now, they will be doing that soon. And I'm, I'm hopefully hoping to help them, actually. Um, and the, the first thing I'm going to do is say, oh, are you implementing an algorithm to hire people? Let's make sure it's not racist. Let's be sure it's, make sure it's not sexist. Let's make sure it doesn't discriminate against people with mental health status. There's all sorts of regulations involved, and the companies that are using these algorithms have to make double sure that they're not going to get in trouble. In a world in which, based on information, everything is forecastable, everything is predictable, actually the kinds of skills that will become more valuable will be things like emotional intelligence, empathy, nurturing, in a sense the more feminine traits, the masculine traits. Every single business, including their procurement department, will not be looking to partner with the most successful companies of today, they'll be looking to partner with the companies and other businesses and supporters who they think will be the most successful in the next 20, 30, 40 years. It does open up a whole new economy that's based on emotion, not just transaction. So my takeaway from Tracy is this, ethics and tech, ownership and governance. How do we ensure that if you start a business tomorrow, tech and a code of conduct is baked in from day one? How do we know that business is started for the practice of being good and serving society as opposed to moving to the dark side of collecting data and information in order to manipulate the way we think? Tech is good and should only be used for good. Every startup and scale up should have this in their DNA from day one. But how do we make this happen? In terms of pre crime, when we think about this system as it exists now, do we think it makes it better? 
or will it actually make the system much less trusted? I'll leave you with that to ponder. But for now, that's it for this episode of the Future Visions podcast. Thanks again to Tracy Follows, Jennifer Arcuri, Kathy O'Neill and Emily Orton. As ever, if you want to find out more about our guests, just head to virgin.com or share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Virgin using the Future Visions hashtag. Next time on the Future Visions podcast. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up an innovation centre and we're going to get lots of beanbags and then we'll take everybody who works for us who's a little bit weird and or has a hoodie and we're going to move them from where they are now. We're going to put them in the innovation centre and we're going to free them up to innovate and really shake things up, really disrupt our core business. Those are nonsense. We meet applied futurist, broadcaster and writer Ben Hammersley for our final episode in this series. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Hello, Future Visions listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business, the show that tells stories of amazing entrepreneurs, mavericks and innovators. We meet people who've taken it upon themselves to challenge industries with new ways of thinking. So each episode, we have an original disruptor, a current entrepreneur who's making waves and someone who might represent the future. In March of 1994, we launched Maya Gold, which was based on a Maya cocoa recipe, but we had translated it into a chocolate bar recipe. It was a huge wave of support because all the organizations that had been part of the Fair Trade Foundation all really got behind it. We had vicars in their pulpits telling their parishioners, go forth and multiply the sales of this product because <laughs> it's, you know, it's got the fair trademark. And very quickly, bananas, coffee, sugar, tea, those companies came in with fair trade products too once they saw the scale of support for the brand. That's the Voom podcast with me, Nikki Beatty. Subscribe now on iTunes or via your favourite podcast app. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.